good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn in the Word of God tonight to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read the first seven verses. And, and there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, My servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. And then he said, Go abroad, the vessels, or go borrow the vessels abroad of all thy neighbours, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God. And he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. It's always important to exercise great care in the interpretation of these Old Testament portions. I think we read the passages and we want immediately to know what could this portion of God's Word mean to me today. And the temptation sometimes as we read the Word of God is to bring our own suppositions to get a meaning for ourselves. For instance, here we may be tempted to see the oil that is given as emblematic of the Holy Spirit. Oil often pictures the Holy Spirit in Scripture. But when you do that in this particular story, you're left with the situation where the woman sells the Holy Ghost for her debts. And so you see the problems that may arise when we immediately jump to conclusions regarding interpretation. We may want to get somewhere, but we've got to make sure we get to the right place in the right manner. Again, in the context of this section of 2 Kings, we are looking or we're about to look at a series of events and miracles that are given to display the power of Jehovah and confirm the authority of God's prophet. All the way through to chapter 6, we will look at God dealing with barrenness and death and disease and drought. And when you see that, when you see the big picture of this section, you will see that ultimately each of the miracles are given to teach us things regarding God. How does God work in days of apostasy? How does God work in days of religious declension? So note, first of all here, the predicament. We have clearly a predicament, a problem, in verse number 1. There is a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. This woman 
This unnamed lady has suffered the loss of her husband. If I can borrow another preacher's outline, I will do it at this point. He makes the point that she suffered heartbreak, widowhood, pain. She has lost a good man. She's lost a godly man. And there is certainly heartbreak in the situation here. From that heartbreak, there is then the resulting hardship. There is poverty that results. Poverty that led to the need to enter into debt. And from that debt, there was then the leading into what we may call horror. The horror of impending slavery for her two sons. The Bible in the Old Testament law does give provision for such slavery in financial difficulty. It's important to remind ourselves again that debt in the Bible, financial debt, is not always wrong, but it is certainly dangerous. And so the creditor, mentioned in verse number one, coming to take the sons into bondage, the creditor is not acting outside the law of God necessarily. And there is provision for this within the Old Testament judicial law. Yes, he must not charge interest, but we were not told here that this creditor is acting unjustly or that he was harsh or behaving in an unlawful fashion. What strikes me is that she is suffering despite her husband's faithfulness. Look what it says. Thy servant... My husband is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. He was a faithful man of God, and she is suffering despite her husband's faithfulness to the Lord. It may even be, but it's a speculation, it may be that she is presenting her difficulty in a way that she is suffering due to righteousness. Could it be that her husband's death is in some way due to the uh, situation around her? Is it to do with the reign of Ahab and Jezebel? We, we, We can't be certain. And so she is in a challenging situation. Her husband's a good man, yet she suffers. Is that not often the cry of the righteous? Is that not something we can hear often? Why why should a godly woman lose a godly husband? Why should a godly family see their children sick unto death? Why should a hard-working Christian man fall into unemployment and financial troubles? Why should these things happen? Well, we must remind ourselves, as we should remind this lady if we were to speak to her, that she is suffering in the context of the sovereign will of God. None of this heartbreak or hardship or horror is coming upon her outside of God's will. God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, Ephesians chapter 1. What's also taught in 1 Peter 4 is that those who suffer, they suffer according to the will of God. And so this event in this woman's life is happening under the sovereign will of God, her faithful creator, as Peter refers to God. Faithfulness does not exempt any from suffering. Poverty is not necessarily a sign of ungodliness. 
Oh, we understand that the lazy, the sluggard in Proverbs, will suffer from poverty. But every, every event of poverty is not necessarily a sign of ungodliness or a lack of industry. I think we should remind ourselves at this time, I think God's people always need to remind themselves of this, that we should beware reading providence with harshness. Some people may have looked upon this lady and noted her sufferings. God must be wanting to teach her something. They may look at this providence and say, well, clearly this woman must have been engaged in some sinful practice. Clearly here is an example of chastisement. Clearly here is a woman who is suffering because of something she has done. That's not the account of Scripture. Undoubtedly, it is true that God is always teaching his people the things that they should learn. And God undoubtedly uses providence to teach his people lessons regarding their need for trusting in God and faithfulness. Yet, it is a harsh judgment to suggest that this woman is suffering because of her personal sin. Rather, the testimony here is that she is suffering in the context of faithfulness in days of apostasy. Their testimony, I believe, as a family is remarkable. These are people of devout faith in a time when there are but a few that are not bowing the knee to Baal. And so having noted her predicament, not in the second place, her prayer. Remember the context of her approach to the prophet. She is suffering as she comes to Elisha. And in such suffering, we see, and we see her character of faith. This is a turning to God. Now, I think this is interesting. In the previous chapter, we've looked at the account of the kings. They had forgotten to inquire of God until crisis came. And this is not the case here. We are finding someone in the context of a God-fearing home who in the time of crisis is appropriately calling upon the Lord because that is what godly people do. They do come to God in their times of trouble. Remember also that this is, I believe, a prayer of faith. She approaches Elisha. She cries to Elisha. Again, I think that stands in contrast to the words of the children in the previous chapter. Go up thy bald head. Go up thy bald head. They, they want nothing to do with God's prophet. But here's, here's a woman who approaches God's prophet. And to approach the prophet is to approach the one who sent the prophet. That's the language. If you regard the prophet... You're regarding the one who sent the prophet. And so she is regarding Elisha. And in her approach to him, she is approaching the Lord. Faith, faith in God is always a praying faith. Remember the atheists in Psalm 14, for example? The fool who says in his heart, there is no God. As the psalmist then describes the, uh, the reality of the atheists, they come to the conclusion that they do not call upon the Lord. They don't pray. But those who believe in God, they do pray. Prayer of faith, a prayer that simply presents the facts. Uh, I think this is an important lesson for us to learn. Much of what we're seeing tonight is, is very familiar ground. 
But note here, she does not tell God what to do. She simply says, my servant, my husband is dead, and the creditor has come to take my sons to be bondmen. We must be careful in our praying as a church and as individuals, that in our praying we do not go to the point that we tell God to sort the problem out the way we think is best. It's very easy we do this. We, we see a solution. We maybe can't achieve a solution, but we see a solution. And so we come to God and we say, Lord, you need to do this, 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 and this. And we, we map out the pathway whereby we expect God to work. Uh, and God's ways are not always. And so we should immediately be cautious that we put our ways on to God and say, this is how we want you to deal with this problem. No, rather, you just think of Psalm 55. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain thee. Think of the New Testament equivalent, 1 Peter 5. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. It is simply the matter in prayer that we give the matter over to the Lord. No solution found in self, no solution found in our own wisdom, but a recognition that God is able, and a resignation that God knows best. To reminder, a simple reminder that it is wise to simply say to God, like Jehoshaphat did, we know not what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. How often that's true in the church, in the family, in our own private lives. We do not know what to do. Lord, here it is. And leave it with the Lord. And so that's your prayer. Which leads on to the next thing when we see the prophet of God. Verse number two, what shall I do for thee? It's one of those questions that how you read it will often determine what interpretation you put upon the question. It's a sense of a willingness that reveals the very character of God. Now, this is a particular case, a specific case. It doesn't mean, it's worth reminding ourselves in this, it doesn't mean that all believers will never suffer poverty or want. There may well have been others in the land at this time who were suffering in their own needs, in their own poverty. So what are we learning here then? Well, again, I remind you that we are learning here lessons regarding the character of God. Psalm 111, we sang it this evening. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. If you've forgotten that, may God remind you of that truth tonight. The God of the Bible, the God of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the God who's full of compassion. And so you see in this that God is willing to hear and bear our burdens. Elisha does not remove her, does not send her away, but rather listens to the situation and has a desire to help her. God does not forsake his people. We have that time and time again in the word of God. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Or Psalm 55 again. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Now this, this prophet is intervening on the behalf of a nameless woman. Note again verse 1. There cried a certain woman. She has no prestige, no status. She has no importance in the eyes of the world. 
And yet God miraculously hears her prayer. Again, I think we should see the contrast of the previous chapter. Because sometimes people, they have a view of God. There's a God that sits in 2 Kings chapter 3. The God that deals with kings and wars and big things like that. But not the God that would care for a certain unnamed woman in a particular situation. But praise God, the God of the universe is the God of the humble, poor widow woman. The God of the universe is the God who cares for you tonight, dear child of God. Your problems are not too small for God. The God who knows the hairs on your head, the God who does not allow a sparrow to fall without knowing about it, is a God who cares for you in all of your predicaments, in all of your challenges. He is not unmindful. Rather, though we are poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon us. Again, these are common things. I know you know this, but sometimes we need to hear it again. And so as you sit, as you consider your life today, do not see God as the God who simply is dealing with Israel and Russia and Syria and these things, but see your God as a God who is concerned with you where you are today. That is our God. One of the comforts, I think, in rightly understanding the atonement is that Christ did not deal or did not come to die for an unnamed multitude, but he came to die for individual sinners. And evidence again that God has you on his heart and has loved you with an everlasting love and a love that will never let you go. Moving on, the fourth place then to the process that God uses. There is a process here. Elisha deals with the the issue. It gives a template, I think, of how God helps the needy in times of crisis. There must, first of all, be a recognition of our hopelessness. I've only got one pot. A little oil. I have nothing save a pot of oil. This is not this woman suggesting, here's my hope. This is not a suggestion of a sign of hopefulness, that God could do something with that. I don't believe she has any sense of possibility here. It's like the disciples of the five loaves and the two fishes. What is it among so many? These are hopeless things in sight of the, the problem we face. God is able to do great things out of hopeless things. That's how God gets the glory. It's one of the ways God gets glory as he works in this world. He does great things through things that are seemingly hopeless. He does great things through individuals that are seemingly hopeless. And so she recognized her hopelessness. God also has a regard for obscurity. Now what happens? Verse number four. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons. Uh, This is one of the times that we should be careful in making too much out of this. What is the significance in this? Well, God has at this time chosen to perform his glorious work out of public scrutiny. It may well have been an act of judgment. God's miracles were given to 
prove his identity. But here we find that there's a time when God is working in obscurity behind closed doors. But what is also the case is that God at times chooses to work with us privately in our own experience. That God will deal with us in a manner that is, that is very individual. It's a one-on-one encounter. Jairus' daughter is raised when the people are put out. We meet with God in the privacy of private prayer. And there are times when we go into our closet and we shut the door. Same language. And as we shut the door, then God comes and does something incredible. It's just a passing thought. But it's reminded to us again. We should seek those secret private times with God in our interaction with Him. But there is, I think, primarily in this, a regard for obedience. There is here stipulations that Elisha gives to this lady. She is to go and borrow vessels, even the empty ones, borrow not a few, and then she is to set about pouring the oil into the vessels. Now here again, it troubles me when commentators criticize and chastise this woman because they will conclude if she had borrowed more vessels, she would have had more oil. And they say her lack of faith hindered her enjoyment of more of God's blessing. How can it be that God's people will consistently think the worst of people? And they read the scriptures and they immediately begin to see that there's a fault here. I don't see any fault here. She was told what to do and she did what she was told. She did it immediately and thoroughly and wholeheartedly. She gleaned multiple vessels and I believe that God blessed her as much as God wanted to bless her. After all, what happens? The amount of oil clears all the debts and is sufficient for her to live the rest of her life. God did exactly what was required as she obeyed what God had said. Her obedience shows her faith. Why would she bother even gathering vessels if she had some doubt of what God's able to do? She's clearly believing that God can do something here, so she gets all the vests she can, and yes, when they're full, the miracle stops. Because the vests are full. God has done exactly what he had planned to do for her good. You see, in our blessings, it is usually God's way for us to be involved He delights to bring us into the process. He works. He gets all the glory. But we're involved. It is God's will that we are not simply spectators to his work, but we are participants in his work. That's why we've got a prayer meeting. That's why God is pleased to use men to evangelize and preach the word of God. That's why God is pleased to use the humble prayers of a mother at her bedside as she cries over the souls of her children. God is pleased to use these things. We obey the will of God, and God is pleased to bless. Which leads finally to the provision. I've said it already, and let me remind you again. Verse number 7, God does bless incredibly. 
The vests are filled, and the Lord's servant then tells her in verse number uh, 7, Go sell the oil, pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. She, again, requires guidance from God. We need to hear the word of God as to how we're to even deal with God's blessings. And so God gives her beyond what she desired. Her concern was the debt. God gives her a vision for her life. He gives exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. God gives her above what she desired, and God is pleased to give her sufficient. Verse number seven again, and live. Live thou and thy children of the rest. You have enough, sufficient. God is the God who gives what is required. I, again, I think of several of the verses in Philippians chapter 4. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Familiar verses, but a reminder to us that God is able to meet us at the point of our extremity. When all hope is lost, when ruin seems to be at our doorstep, God is able to step in and do what is required for his glory. Principles. General principles, but principles confirmed by Christ as he reminds us that our Lord knoweth that we have need of such things. Don't be anxious, don't be careful, but God is able to provide for us according to his will for his glory. Now, if we are to see that as true in God's care for his children, I think we also see in this as we close, we see through the glass darkly to a greater gospel truth. And with this I close. And that is that in the gospel, God does more than pay our debts. He pays our debts in Christ Jesus. And he blessed us beyond that with the gift of the Holy Spirit and every spiritual grace that we need to live for Christ in this world and to find ourselves one day at home in heaven. Our God is the God who does more than pay our debts. And we praise his name. We praise God for this revelation of his character again. What encouragement it is. And may we, in light of this, walk by faith and not by sight to the glory of God and to the praise of His name. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m., a Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.